When I was a kid, there, there was a fad that went viral. I'm not talking about MC Hammer Pants, of which I had a pair that my mom homemade me. And I'm not talking about tight rolled jeans, though I participated in that trend, or even overalls with one strap undone. I'm talking about a fad that originated out of your local Christian bookstore and infiltrated every evangelical youth group across America. And in fact, made it all the way to the NBA. I remember watching as a child, as watching the 76ers play basketball on TV and noticing that Allen Iverson was wearing the same bracelet that I was wearing. WWJD bracelets. If you're somewhere between your late 30s to mid 40s, you probably remember this trend. I heard they're, they're making a comeback, by the way. But when I was in middle school, we got these WWJD bracelets. What would Jesus do? It, it was a question intended to force you to stop in a moment and consider how Jesus might act in that situation were he faced with the same situation, situation that you were faced with. So as a, as a kid, this went something like, should I cheat on this test that I didn't adequately study for? Well, WWJD, what would Jesus do, right? Should I hide from my parents where I'll be on Friday night? What would Jesus do? Rocky Road or mint chocolate chip, right? What would Jesus do? Mint chocolate chip is what he would do. It's not a bad question. It's not a bad question. How, how might Jesus act placed in the situation I find myself in? After all, we're, we're called to follow Jesus in every part of our lives. We're called to live in the pattern of Christ. In this section of the letter of 1 Peter, the apostle has, has just finished calling believers to, to think exactly this way, to, to live in, in this sort of a thinking. Two weeks ago, we saw that Peter is calling these believers to submit to every human authority, despite the fact that the governing authorities were actually at times mistreating and persecuting them, he tells them to, to submit to every authority, to honor the emperor. Last week, we looked at this really challenging text that, that calls slaves to in reverence submit to their slave masters and to do good, to endure suffering even under harsh slave masters. And then in verse 21 that we just read, he says, for you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. There it is, right? What should I do as a slave under an, a, a, a pagan slave master who's treating me harshly? Well, you're to follow the example of Jesus. You're to ask yourself, what would Jesus do? And Peter begins to unpack in the following verses what Jesus did when faced with unfair treatment. He did not commit sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. He didn't utter any lies. When reviled, Jesus didn't revile in return. When, when suffering, he didn't spew threats. He submitted himself to the Father. 
trusting that God would render justice in due time. So the next time you find yourself in an oppressive relationship under the thumb of one mistreating you, stop and ask, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would say nothing. He would sin nothing. He would submit to mistreatment and surrender to the sovereignty of God. It's that simple, right? Except it's not that simple, is it? The great theologian J.I. Packer tells of, of an experience in his life with a similar phrase. When, when he first became a Christian, he encountered a, a, a version of, of theology called Keswick theology. And, and perhaps you've heard the phrase before, let go and let God. Maybe, maybe you've come across that one. Well, early in Packer's Christian journey, he encountered this teaching that anyone can experience a victorious Christian life simply through an act of faith that leads to total surrender. Or as the phrase goes, simply by letting go and letting God. And as as Packer tells his story, he says that this teaching for him as a new believer was actually deeply damaging and that it robbed him of the joy of his salvation because he was grieved Because try as he may, he just couldn't seem to let go and let God enough to battle the indwelling sin in his life. He just couldn't seem to find victory. It just wasn't that simple. In Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul gives a glimpse into his own struggle with the flesh. In Romans 7, we read Paul lamenting. It's almost like getting a peek into Paul's private journal. He says, I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. I do not practice the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. And when I want to do good, it's like evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in the law of God, but, but I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin. And then Paul just kind of in this combustive moment says, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? You ever found yourself there? You ever found yourself trapped in a war between the flesh and the spirit? feeling captive to do the things that you don't want to do, feeling incapable of doing the things that you know you should. Imagine being in the middle of one of those wars and someone walking up to you and saying, what would Jesus do? Or let go, let God. I don't know about you, but I would immediately do what Jesus would not. I'd be tempted to punch him, right? I'll tell you what I'm about to let go of, this fist, right? (laughs) Friends, often the issue in our lives is not a lack of knowledge, but a lack of a sense of power. It's not that we don't know what to do, it's that we don't have the strength in ourselves to do it. 
And so we not only need an understanding of what Jesus would do, we need to know his power in us. We need his power at work to enable us to actually live in the pattern that he set forth. Jesus is our example. Make no bones about it. If you want to know what life truly lived looks like, look to Jesus. Jesus is our example, but he is more than that for us. And if you only look to Jesus as an example to follow, you will live a powerless, defeated life. You'll never know the power of the gospel at work in your life. You cannot follow the example of Jesus in your own strength. And so can I risk a hunch this morning? Here's my hunch. My hunch is that many of us find ourselves defeated by sin and the flesh. And if that's the case, then my guess is that it's not for a lack of knowledge that you were called to follow the example of Jesus. In many cases, you not only know that Jesus shows you the way forward, you actually know what that way is. And yet you still struggle to follow because left in your own strength, you will never succeed in following him. And that is why Peter pivots in verse 24. As he's, calling, as he's calling these believers to follow the example of Jesus, he then points them to the power source for doing so. Jesus is not only their example, he is their suffering servant and the shepherd of their souls. And this is what's going to enable them to actually follow him. So let me put it simple. The power to live the Christian life comes through the gospel. The power to follow the example of Jesus comes through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Peter says in verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. What's Peter doing here? Well, he's just set forth Jesus as the example to follow. Here's what it looks like to submit to unjust suffering, to, to submit to oppressive leaders. He, he's given Jesus as an example, but now he says, I want to give you more of Jesus. I want to give you the power source for actually living that way. He reminds them of the gospel, that Jesus became our sin bearer. Peter hearkens back to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53 is this amazing passage of scripture. It was written 700 years before Jesus came, but it paints a beautiful picture of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Jesus became our suffering servant. He, he died in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. This is the doctrine, this is the theological reality of substitutionary atonement, that, that Jesus became a curse for us. He became like a sponge that absorbed the wrath of God righteously poured out on sin. Christ absorbed the penalty of our sin on the cross. He carried our burden to the cross and by his death accomplished our redemption. 
And so the gospel is this, not that if you, if you do your best and, and, and look to Jesus as your example, God will accept you. That is not the gospel. The gospel is this, that you can't do enough, that you're far more wretched and worse than you even realize. That there is nothing that you can do to deal with your fundamental problem, which is that you are a sinner. And that God is holy. And that in His holiness, He will not just overlook your sinfulness. He's too righteous and just to do that. So you needed someone willing to step in and to pay your penalty. Someone worthy to pay that penalty. Someone perfect. You needed God to become a man. To live the life you couldn't live. To die the death that you deserve. To conquer sin and death through his resurrection from the grave. And you needed, you needed God to do that willingly. And that's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus stepped in to our humanity and humbled himself and served us all the way to the cross. And the good news of the gospel is that when we believe in that news, when we receive that message by faith, that we are forgiven and counted as righteous before God. That the, that the penalty for the sin that we owed, Christ paid for us. And that we appropriate that simply by faith. We are freed from the curse of sin. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are worse than you even know and more loved and you can even dream. Pastor Tim Keller reminds us that putting your faith in Christ is not about trying harder. It means transferring our trust away from ourselves and resting in Jesus. But see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. What we tend to think is that once we've believed in that message for our salvation, it's now up to us to live differently. We tend to think, well, Jesus got my forgiveness, but now it's up for me. It's up to me to now live differently. This is wrong thinking. Keller says, it is inaccurate to think the gospel is what saves non-Christians and then Christians mature by trying hard to live according to biblical principles. It is more accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel, and then we are transformed in every part of our minds, hearts, and lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. In other words, that the way in is the way forward. The way to grow in the Christian life is the same way of becoming a Christian. It's all by the gospel. It's the work of Jesus from end to end. And so maybe you're going, well, how does that work? I want to try to show you. I want to try to show you what Peter's doing in these verses. Look at verse 44. And I want to key in on this phrase that he uses, having died to sins. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's the gospel, right? Christ paid for our sins on the cross. But then notice what he says next. So that having died to sins... We might live for righteousness. What Peter is saying in that phrase, having died to sins, is profound. Because what he's saying is that when Jesus died for your sins, and you believe that by faith, it's as if you died with him. 
You are united to Christ by faith so that his death for sins becomes your death to sin. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. What do you mean, Paul? You're still alive, right? (laughs) What do you mean I no longer live? It means that mysteriously in union with Jesus, when you put your faith in him for salvation, his crucifixion became your crucifixion. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I live in the body, in the flesh, the life, the the living and breathing life I live right now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so there is this fundamental, mysterious reality that occurs in the gospel, that you have been united to Jesus in his death and resurrection. And so what this means, as Ray Ortland puts it, is that you are no longer trapped in you. You are no longer limited by your past. Your story has now been written into his story. Your scenes have been spliced into his film. You have a new future now. You were buried with Christ by baptism into death. As Wesley just pictured for us. And you were raised to walk in newness of life. And what this means is that the flesh is no longer the dominating source of wisdom and control that governs your life. You have a new master. Paul says in Romans 6, therefore consider yourselves, reckon yourselves, regard yourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So here's my question. What narrative are you living under this morning? What story are you believing about yourself? What's the dominant voice in your life? D. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Far too often we listen to ourselves. We listen to the lies of the flesh. I, I can't beat this sin. It's just too overwhelming. Following Jesus is just too hard. You will murmur yourself into defeat. But what would happen if you began to, to gospel yourself instead? Jesus bore my sins in his body on the cross. I have been crucified with Christ so that I no longer live. By his wounds, I have been healed. What if the most dominant voice in your life began to be the gospel? Ed Clowney points out that in the context of these verses, when when Peter says, by his wounds, you have been healed, that would have resonated, especially to those he was just talking to, which were slaves. Slaves who, many of whom probably had literal scars, wounds, welts, whips, from being, being, being punished as slaves. And so the question is, how, how did Christ's wounds bring them healing? Especially, especially if Peter is calling them to continue to submit 
to harsh masters and suffer more. Well, how's that healing, Jesus? How's that healing, Peter? Clowney says this, he says, because that which is to be feared most is not the wrath of men, but the wrath of God. And Jesus has endured that for them. And that which is to be desired most is not the passing comforts of this world, but the blessing of God's eternal inheritance. And Jesus has secured that for them. So even in their present state of suffering, they could taste the joy of heaven. In other words, the gospel freed them to follow Jesus, even if that meant suffering. The gospel empowered them to hope in the promise of eternal life. It assured them of a day coming when pain and oppression would be no more. When God, the just judge, would deal with, would deal with every single one of their harsh masters. He would make all things right, and he's going to make all things new. The gospel comforted them in their trials and gave them a new motivation for their endurance. Because by Christ's wounds they are healed. See, the problem for most of us, and I'll speak for myself, the problem for me, many days, oftentimes, is that the gospel has not gone down deep enough into my heart. It hasn't gripped me to the point where I actually believe it and see through it as a lens that changes everything. It hasn't moved, moved me to worship my way forward in power. Pastor Jeff Vanderstelt tells a story of, of counseling a young man who was stuck in a pattern of, of ongoing sin in the area of pornography. He recounts a conversation he had with, with this young man. He says that he came to him one day after falling into sin again. And, and so he asked him, he said, when, when you go back into this sinful pattern, he says, what happens next? What happens to you? And he said, I'm full of guilt. I'm, I'm full of shame. I'm, I'm just, I'm embarrassed and I'm, and I'm humiliated. And so he asked, he said, do you believe that the cross of Jesus was sufficient? That Christ died once for all time? That that one-time payment was enough for all of your sins? That you don't need to go and hide? That, you, that he doesn't have to die over and over and over for you? And he said, well, yeah, I, I do believe that. And so Vanderstelt asked him, he said, well, let me ask you, at the point of your sin, how long does it take you to, to get back to the foot of the cross and to worship Jesus for the fact that he died for that sin? He says, sometimes it takes me two or three days. And Vanderstelt asked him, he said, so for two or three days, when you were running from Jesus away from the cross, who's getting all of the dependency? Who's getting all of the focus? Where is all of your hope being placed? And he said, well, it's, it's on myself. And so Vanderstelt went on and he said, so do you understand that the very thing that led you into the sin of pornography, you're now trusting in to lead you to grace? In other words, you're actually thinking that trusting in yourself is going to get you free from that sin. But that's the very thing that got you into sin in the first place. He said, so what do you do? He said, well, I beat myself up. And isn't that what we do when we fall into sin? We fall into asceticism. We think that we have to punish ourselves. 
as if Christ wasn't punished enough for us, as if he didn't fully bear the penalty and pay the price. And so Vanderstilt asked him, he said, so you believe that you have to hang on a cross for what you've done. You believe you have to pay for it because the cross was not sufficient enough for you. But friends, the cross was sufficient, was it not? And so he asked him this, he said, why not at the point at which you looked at that stuff, don't you get on your knees and say, God, thank you that you forgave me for what I just did, that you died for this. In fact, Vanderstuck goes on and he says, why don't you do that before you look at the stuff? The stuff that I'm about to do, Jesus, I praise you for forgiving me for what I'm about to do. You died for this, and so I'm thankful. And the guy's response to that was, well, if I did that, I wouldn't sin. And Vanderstilt said, that's the point. Because when you see how amazing and scandalous the grace of Jesus actually is, that the Son of God robed himself in flesh, and humbled himself, and lived obediently for you, and died for you. He was whipped for you, he was beaten for you, he bore nails for you, he suffered on a cross for you. When you really see that, you don't wanna sin anymore. You wanna cling to the cross of Jesus, you wanna love Jesus, you wanna follow Jesus, you wanna worship Jesus. That's why Titus says this. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What is it that trains us for godliness? What is it that teaches us to renounce lustful cravings and passions? Paul says to Titus, it's the gospel. It's grace that teaches us to renounce sin. It's grace that leads us to want to obey. It's the goodness of Jesus that gives us the motivation to walk in obedience. It's not guilt. It's not fear. It's not rules. It's gratitude. It's gratitude that actually makes us want to obey. Look at verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray. This is again... He's going back to Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has gone his own way. We ran from God. We lived in our sin. What makes us want to come home? But you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What makes us want to come home? Romans 2.4 says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Grace is what draws us home and leads us to stay. Forgive me if I've shared this story before, but it's just too good. Mike Cosper tells the story in one of his books from from the era before America's slaves were freed about a northerner who went to a slave auction and purchased a young slave girl. And as they were walking away from the slave auction, the man turned to the girl and he told her, you're free now. You're free to go. She couldn't believe it. What do you mean I'm free? 
You're free. You're no longer a slave. I've, I've bought you out of slavery. She said, you mean I can, I can say whatever I want to say? He said, yeah, you can say whatever you want to say. I can be whatever I want to be? He said, be whatever you want. I can go wherever I want to go? And with a smile, he answered, yes, you, can, you are free to go wherever you want to go. And she looked at him and she said, then I'll go with you. That's what the gospel does. That's gospel power in your life. It helps us to look into the eyes of Jesus who gave up everything to set us free. He purchased our freedom with his own blood. And we look into those eyes of love and we say, I wanna go with you. In the freedom of the gospel, where there is no condemnation, we are not compelled to live for ourselves. We are not compelled to just live in sin because we have been captured by the affections of Jesus. We have been captured by the kindness of God. And we say, I want to go with you. That is what Peter is doing in these verses. He's saying, Jesus is your example, but he is so much more than your example. Jesus has died for your sins. Jesus has set you free. Jesus has rescued you from the power and the tyranny and the oppression of sin so that we might live for righteousness. That's what he says in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. And friends, listen, this, this call to righteousness, the, the, the reality that we can live for righteousness, this is not an impossible ideal. This is not the call to roll a boulder uphill. That's sometimes how we think about sanctification. We think following Jesus is like rolling a boulder uphill. And what Peter's saying is no, all of the heavy lifting has been done. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the power of the gospel, right? John Barrage put it this way. He said, run, John, run and work the law commands, yet finds me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and lends me wings. See, the gospel gives you wings to fly. Augustine said it this way, he said, God, grant what thou commandest and then commandest what thou wilt. In other words, God, what you require, you're gonna have to provide. And that's the good news. And so before we ask the question, what would Jesus do? We should first ask, what has Jesus done? Camp out there for a while. Dwell there with amazement. He bore your sins. He healed your wounds. He forgave you. He freed you of all condemnation. He loved you. He adopted you. He put his spirit inside of you so that you are secure. And then he says, now live in that reality. Let's pray together.